Okay. So, let me see. You want me to do it on your Facebook? Yeah. Yeah, you do that. I'll do the intro. We'll get started. And let's see. Hopefully, I don't butcher. Hopefully, I don't <laughs> butcher the title. <laughs> did you did you mess with the voice for mine? Oh, I feel like my voice is deeper today. I think you're getting You did. Older. Is that is that the oh, no. Which one? No. Oh, which one which one was mine? No, oh. it's fine. It's fine. Leave it alone. Anyways. Alrighty. Let me just I put think this you're on. just maturing on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what 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 kind of camera is that, by the way? Uh, it's the cheapest one we could find, Doctor. Yeah, <laughs> and the most, <laughs> most state of the art we can find. Oh gosh. Alright, here we go. <clears throat> is that who is that? Is that Yud? of a split second you had to notice that okay of course i did <laughs> good morning gentlemen happy good, monday good evening it's five o'clock somewhere is it uh, yes yes it is uh we have a special guest with us today dr vegan sepilian now we're gonna I, i'm hoping i don't butcher butcher this but uh but dr sepilian specialist is he's an infertility specialist and a reproductive endocrinologist correct that's correct, yes. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Thank, yeah, thank you for taking time out of your busy Monday to join us for some, some real talk. And obviously, you know, I'm sure you know, we have questions and hopefully our listeners, our watchers, our viewers all have questions as yes. well. But uh, before we jump into questions and everything, let's go back a little bit in time. Uh, let's talk about you and, uh, you know, how it all began and... Um, you know, where you went to school, you know, why you chose, you know, the field that you are, you know, uh, you're in right now. Yeah, actually, um, school started as all of us did. Um, you know, I'm from Lebanon originally. I was born and raised there. So I moved here as a result of the war and ended up uh, finishing up high school here. Family, we had already moved part of the family, so we joined them. Um you know, going into medicine was something that I wanted to do all along and as far back as I could remember. In fact, you know, my dad's nickname to me was Doc or, you know, mm -hmm. in Arabic they say Hakim. You know, you say Hakim, Hakim, like, hey, here comes the Doc. Wow. But uh, but in reality, that's kind of, I, I don't remember where, it, it, all along as far back as I can remember, that's, that's you know, what I was going to do and... Uh, in terms of picking the field of reproductive medicine, you know, reproductive medicine is a one of those few fields in medicine that is extremely cutting edge. Technology is changing. In general, there's lots of fields in medicine that are, but it's one of the few fields where, you know, the outcome is binomial. The outcome is, you know, you, it's black and white. You do the treatment, it works. Somebody's holding a baby at or home. It <laughs> or if it didn't work, then they yeah. it's you know that it's they're black and white. Each other. Yeah. yeah, they're they're that's it's not one of these where okay, here take this medication, your your blood pressure is fine, but come back in six months we'll we'll continue to work on it. It's black and white, right? So and it's very you know, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of very exciting um uh, understanding of how we procreate and how we are who we are and the people that we are. So, Interesting. And where, where did you go to school to study for all this? So school is a long road. Um, you know, this journey has taken me through one, two, three, four, five, six different universities. Oh, wow. Uh, so, and 
along the way, you know, you, you have different levels. Um, we'll go backwards, uh, not to bore you too much. Uh, the last stop before coming back and going into private practice was at University of Texas, the medical branch, um, where I spent three years there. I did my fellowship in infertility there, and also at the same time, because I was a little needed a little bit more of a challenge, I went back and got a master's degree from University of Texas. So that was in medical science, so uh, the research of medicine, so to speak. Before that, I was um, a chief resident at Drexel University in, in doing my OBGYN uh, residency. And um, that was in Philadelphia. And my internship was at Medical College of Pennsylvania and Hahnemann University. So the road takes you, you know, all over the place. Um, locally, when I finished high school, um, you know, I went to St. Francis here in La Cunada, not too far. Uh, I went to Loyola Marymount University, you know, for my undergrad degree. And uh, I was at Ross University for the beginning of medical school. So it's really all over the place. You know, it, you, it's, a, it's one of these really exciting uh, journeys that really takes you around the country if you go with it. You know, if, if that's, you know, that was my approach. And that's why what I advise to people who I mentor these days, you know, embrace the journey, make the most out of it. Any other physicians or do- doctors in your family, or just no, not not. I mean, there there are now some cousins who have who have go- gone into medicine, but not before me. You know, I had an uncle who was a dentist, uh, my aunt's husband, so to speak. But no, there there was in in my family there weren't any role models that directed me to that. It just sort of came organically. So I mean, why fertility? I mean, there's a lot of doctors that'll go out there and they say, you know what, I want to be a cardiologist, I want to be a you know family physician. Um, I mean, what led you to go into infertility or fertility, whichever one, you know, whatever they call it? Yeah, I mean, you can use them interchangeably. And I think it's it's just, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I, you, you got to be too smart to be a cardiologist, you know. I mean, the heart's really complicated. <laughs> it's got a lot of electricity and, and, and you know, it's... Uh, Fertility is one of these fields, yes, it can be very complicated. You have to really have a deep understanding of reproductive uh, physiology and anatomy, both for men and women. You have to have a deep understanding of embryology and what happens, what happened to all of us. Then, by the way, all of us went through what I do on a day-to-day basis. We all started from an egg and a sperm, and somehow that egg and sperm got together. And next thing you know... Those, those two cells decided to merge their nuclei and their chromosomes and then split into two, into four cells, eight cells, 16, 32, 64, then from that become who we are today. So the how they met part, I understand. The rest of it will have to <laughs> Well, until I was 17, my parents told me Flamingo flew me in. <laughs> so that, that was the story in Armenia. Flamingo or Stork? Uh, is it a stork? It's a stork. A flamingo it? doesn't fly. Wait, uh, and, and, and plus the flamingo's the, pink. My and, daughter knows what a flamingo is. Right? see why we call the wife. And and there's no flamingos in Armenia. There's no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that tells you why I'm not a reproductive endocrinologist. I'm surprised at 17, buddy. That that's what surprised. Yeah, it took him a while knew, to break no, the news to me. I don't even believe you because I know you. <laughs> I don't believe you. But you said you were saying like you know being a cardiologist, you have to be super smart and all this. But I think emotionally, you have to be stronger 
as a you know as a fertility specialist because this is something where couples are coming to you and saying you know hey doc we're having a problem here and it's it's a very i'd say emotional subject it to kind of bring up whether it's for the male or female yeah i mean it it definitely is it could be um you know, many, I mean, think of it in this way, and, and I'm not sure if you guys are parents or not, yes. but, uh, you know, you oftentimes people take it for granted, right? It's the next thing that's going to happen. You're, you're going to start a family. Uh, you're going to get married and have kids. And, um, and yeah, it is something that it could be very tough uh, when a couple is faced with that. Um, we have to be there for them, though. I mean, in our field, we take a team approach. I mean, I personally, uh, on a daily basis, you know, and, and, and if I see something that's not right uh, with my team members, and I call them team members, not employees, mm -hmm. I tell them, well, look, you know, put yourself in the patient's shoes, right? Okay, maybe they're running a little late, but that's okay. I mean, uh, they have to leave work, and, and, you know, this had to happen, and that had to happen, and think of where they're coming from, and hence... You know, definitely it can be a, it is, not can be, it is a tough, um, tough endeavor that couples are dealing with, but we have to be there to help them. Yeah. I heard there's depression, <coughs> there's a depression involved with infertility as well. Of well, course. I would think so. Of yeah. course. Stress, anxiety, depression, um, yeah, mental health uh, component of uh, experiencing infertility is, you know, is a big component. And... Oftentimes, our team, not you know, if we feel like somebody needs additional help from a specialist um, who's a mental health specialist, those resources we make available, those referrals we make available. Um, but the good news is, you know, overwhelming majority will succeed. And no matter what, you know, no matter what, when uh, a couple is in front of me and, and I can tell that they're stressed and I can tell that they're... Uh, you know, they're anxious, um, and I, you know, big part of me is, you know, to be their advocate, to be their coach, to be that, that rock that I could say, look, I've been in this situation thousands of times, and if I can only fast forward to you where you're going to be a year or two from now when you're changing diapers and, you know, uh, running around after a, uh, a toddler... toddler you know, uh, I would, but unfortunately I can't. You just have to, you know, just trust the process and go with it and, and know that we're going to get you there one way or another. What would you say is the success rate at this point? I know there is no... Well, well there, there is. Actually, in, in, in reality, there are treatments pretty much for everybody. Really pretty much for everybody. Um, and the success rates really depend on the type of treatment there are, and there's no one size fits all treatment for everyone. So, you know, there's the the basic treatments that we do, which may uh, you know require doing something that's called uh, ovulation induction with intrauterine insemination. Those may work under best of circumstances about twenty twenty five percent of the time per try. But also they're easy to do. It doesn't require the patient to um, be seen that often. You know, maybe two, three visits during that cycle. And, you know, if it works. During the ovulation period? Uh, during the whole cycle, the whole month, <laughs> for, uh, you know, the, the whole month. So, um, 
and and oftentimes, you know, one out of four, it, it may it may work. That's uh, IUI. You that's IUI, to? yeah, intrauterine insemination. There's more involved treatments like in vitro fertilization, or you may hear it as uh, IVF, and the success rates of those have to do with age and the reason why that couple is needing IVF. Um, and even, let's say, some of the most difficult cases where uh, if the likelihood of, let's say, you know, there's no eggs left in the ovary and we have to rely on using an egg donor, or if that couple cannot carry the pregnancy, then we can rely on using a gestational carrier or a surrogate carrier. In these cases, you know, the success rates are very, very good. What's you know? the, what is gestational carrier? So gestational carrier, let's say that, you know, a woman, for whatever reason, it's not recommended for her to carry the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. She's high risk, maybe? Yeah, or she has a medical condition (laughs) that would not make it safe for her to carry the pregnancy. Or, um, you know, uh, or they've had surgery on the uterus, or maybe she's even had the uterus taken out. She's had a hysterectomy for whatever reason. So then in that situation, we have to resort to having another woman carry that pregnancy for them. That's a gestational carrier or oh, a surrogate. Oh, I thought that, that was called surrogate. Same. Oh, it's gestational the same. Sur- oh, right. Yeah, gestational okay. carrier and a surrogate carrier is the same. Ah, okay. Yeah. I thought maybe gestational yeah, is like an artificial... No. Yeah, that's, no. Right. that's what I figured. No, no, no. There's no. talks of that, right? Um, you know, no, I mean, yeah, there's talks of it. There's talks of anything, right? The last Sci-fi. Five years been talks yeah, about but I don't, I don't think that that's uh, near any time, anytime soon. Yeah, we're not going to see that. Yeah, that's you know, you know what I notice with couples, and maybe you could <clears throat> shed some light on this is um, after what point, let's say, a couple gets married, how long into it do you recommend seeking professional help? Is it Six months, 12 months of trying, is it two years? Because uh, it's, it's, there's, I don't know if there's a rule of thumb for that or any recommendation. There is, actually. So the definition of infertility is mm-hmm. when a couple is trying um, a, you know, regular unprotected intercourse for one year. And mm-hmm. if they haven't succeeded, that they're considered to be infertile. Now... After one year, then it's recommended that they seek evaluation and then accordingly get treated. So, Now, if the woman's age is 35 uh, years or older, then that recommendation drops from one year to six months. Wow. So, uh, Because age is a big, uh, you know, one of the biggest... Uh, um, factors, basically. Yeah, factors and, and uh, challenging factors, actually, mm-hmm. that... that you know, adversely impact our ability to help that couple. So now, if that couple is known to have a risk factor, then, you know, we don't recommend them to wait a year. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so couple gets married, the woman doesn't get her periods regularly. Well, there's already something Something that's saying that ovulation isn't occurring Mm -hmm. um, as it should, so accordingly we should evaluate that couple sooner because there could be a very easy fix and without the ovulation being restored, pregnancy isn't going to happen, right? If, you know, she's had some reproductive surgery in the past, that may increase the risk of infertility. Evaluate sooner. Same with the guys. You know, we, I mean, it's, it's the issue of uh, infertility is really 50-50. It's, it's you know, uh, we tend to put a lot more emphasis on the female mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, partner. But, you know, essentially it's the same. And if the guy has had, you know, surgery as a child, has had hernia repairs, has had undescended testicles or some sort of a surgery related to that, um, orchitis, orchitis is an infection of the uh, testes, mm-hmm. yeah, where... You know, mumps is one of the things where you know, it gets the glands here and it also gets the testes. Those are things that really could lead to male factor infertility, and that gentleman should get evaluated, shouldn't wait the year. In fact, oftentimes we even recommend to get evaluated before they get married just to, to know that if they're... You know, there's an issue or anything like that. Do you think IUDs uh, <coughs> affect women getting pregnant after they take out their IUDs? No, no. IUDs are, are a very effective form of contraception, and they prevent pregnancy while they're being used. But once they're used, uh, the... Removed? Yeah, w- once they're removed, they're, you know, the uh, reproductive p- potential is restored almost immediately. Now, I want to ask you this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, from a lot of people that I've spoken to and, you know, the stories you hear, you know, in our culture, uh, when a patient comes to see you, majority of the time, it's always the females that come in, and it's harder mm-hmm. to get the men in. Is that true? We the see m- that commonly. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not majority of the time. I mean, ahead of time, we may, I, we encourage, you know, the couple to come in as a couple. Um, it's not unusual, though, for the, uh, you know, the, the uh, female partner to come in. Uh, the f- female partner, after all, will be the one who's going to receive the treatment because she's going to um, carry, carry. carry the pregnancy, right? So it is more, it is the more complicated part of, you know, of the treatment plan. Um, but, you know, but you'd be surprised. We also have sometimes where the man will come in by himself. Really? Yeah. I would think, like, especially in our culture, I mean, the stories you hear, it's the man says, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. My testosterone level is fine. Everything is, everything's, <laughs> yeah. everything's okay with me. You know, go, go see a doctor. Go check yourself out. But... Long behold, you know, they go in and it's like, all right, uh, you know what? You don't have the sperm count that you're supposed to have or something else might be off. I think that we're overall, we are evolving and we're more receptive to the idea that it is a 50-50 mm-hmm. issue. It's not just, well, it's my wife that it's can't very get pregnant. Recent, very yeah. recent. Well, it's because thanks to doctors like Dr. Sapilian who do have shows on television as well and you know, it's more talked about within our community. You're educating the yeah, community. Yeah, there's a lot of education in our community. Uh, whereas before, like you said, it was just, well, it's your problem. You're the one not getting pregnant. Well, you're half the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get pregnant without yeah. you. So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, another thing is you'd be, you almost can't generalize. I mean, I've seen working in our community for about 14, 15 years now is I've seen the most sort of, close-minded but i've also seen the most Mm open-minded you know and and i've also seen that hey men are men regardless of you know your whether you're armenian or not Mm -hmm. you know from that angle some of the most noteworthy cases have been not armenian Mm -hmm. you know um, and from so as as much of our as our community may be oh it's not my problem you go get checked out <laughs> you know you also i've also seen the flip side very very open minded 
you know, couples men. and men. Yeah. yeah. And they probably have better success rate because of their open minds. Well, I mean, success rate, you can't necessarily look at it as uh, in a vacuum. I mean, oftentimes I look at a couple and say how successful they are as a couple. Because, you know, I mean, evaluating their medical issues is one thing, but also seeing them through the treatment and how they are with each other, supporting each other. And oftentimes, you know, they come back with the kid or with the children down the line a few years later to visit or try on the next one and so on. And seeing how successful they are is a totality, not just, oh, did they get pregnant or not, uh, but they're at it at their, each other's necks, whereas, you know, now they have a family, they look complete, they look complete as a family. Mm. But they're still up each other's necks. Well, you know, that's... <laughs> in, a, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when it comes to... Because I've also talked to a lot of couples over the years where independently they test very... Uh, I mean, they're both very healthy as to... The ovaries, semen, mortality, everything is in place. But together, they're unable to impregnate. Is that some type of a chemical imbalance? How, how, how does that happen if two couples are independently very healthy from a reproductive standpoint, but yet they just can't get pregnant together? Yeah, so about 20% of the time, 20% of cases of infertility is referred to as unexplained infertility. So unexplained infertility is where everything's fine. Everything checks out uh, to our knowledge as far as, and keep in mind, you know, medicine is hasn't, you know, explained 100% of issues. So to our knowledge thus far, it appears that everything is normal. The sperm parameters are normal. The uterus is normal. The fallopian tubes are open. The ovaries appear to be normal. The egg, you know, quantity is is normal, and it's just not happening. They're having intercourse at the right time. Ovulation is occurring at the right time. That's referred to as unexplained infertility. Um, good news is, though, we may never end up knowing what's causing their issue, but um, you know, oftentimes we could still help them, and they get pregnant, and then, you know, why it didn't happen that during that attempt ends up being a secondary issue. And more times than none, the second time around, they end up getting pregnant without any help on their own. Mm. So it's a matter of the first time is usually the challenge. Sometimes. Um, and there is this whole idea, I mean, and, and you know, uh, not necessarily backed by science, um, but I'm a true believer in it because I've seen it again and again, is that parenthood itself is therapeutic. Right, mm. motherhood and fatherhood. Right, like you know, a woman becomes pregnant and has a child for whatever reason. Something occurs where the next time around it becomes easier to conceive, right. and whatever it was about that, you know, pregnancy or or the whole process of that woman becoming a mother had a therapeutic effect. And this also occurs with the father. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a it's a quality of parenthood itself having some sort of an impact, um, you know, where we may see that, oh, that, that those poor p- sperm parameters may have improved mm-hmm. with, with nothing else to explain for it. You know, now they're older, but, you know, things somehow got better. And, you know, I, and I've seen that with couples that for 15 years couldn't get pregnant. They used, you know, medicine, whether it be IVF or whatnot, and finally they were pregnant. And then the second and third one, naturally within a year or two, 
just happened. Just happened, whereas the first 15 years of their marriage, they were unable to. That's right, yeah. yeah. And we see that again and again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, my theory is it's, it is truly, you know, parenthood itself that's, that's really having this therapeutic effect. Mm-hmm. Um, we do know that, you know, it does rewire brains. Yeah. Um, it's been shown, like, even having a daughter rewires a father's brain. Definitely. You know, you know, changes, you know, changes something in the brain, you know, makes that man nicer, maybe a little softer. <laughs> That's why these two are very <laughs> nice. You can vouch yeah, for it. Of course, yeah, man. I mean, I mean, at this point in my life, I mean, I can be a tent for my daughter. I could be a dog for my daughter. I could be a horse for my daughter, whatever it is. But I mean, two years ago, three years ago, you asked me that. Are you crazy? <laughs> you want me to get on my hands and knees and have a kid run on uh, run on my back? Yeah. Now it's like, okay, what do you want daddy to be today? I mean, I'm, at a, I'm at a stage where my older one, I can't pick her up anymore. We can't do those crazy things. Now she's getting upset because only her sister gets to jump on my back and jump down. She can't. She's too heavy for you. You need to work out. I, Put on some muscle. Oh God, it's difficult. Well, Doc, sometimes you miss that, right? Doc, yeah. let me ask you this. Now, uh, obviously, as far as infertility is concerned, there's uh, there's always been questions from women and men. Uh, when a woman is on a pill for a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. and they come off the pill, um, is it true that infertility can occur because of that, where the body kind of gets used to it, and you know, is you know, it, basically, the pill becomes, you know, just a uh, it just doesn't. They don't even need the pill anymore. Their bodies kind of become immune to it. No, that's not true. Not at all. I mean, hmm. you stop the pill, the next month you, you can get, you can well, get pregnant. Really? So there is no evidence at all that the uh, the birth control pill has a lost, uh, you know, long lasting effect. Now there are forms of contraception that are depots. So a depot form of contraception is you take the injection, and then that injection is supposed to last for three months, right? So. It could be that, you know, instead of it lasting three months, it took a little bit longer for the body to clear it out. What does that do? It just doesn't release the ovulation? Yeah, it prevents ovulation. Or it makes the uh, the uterus, uh, the uterine lining in such a condition that does not allow implantation or not even to implant, the, you know, the embryo. So, and that may... Um, that may linger on. But uh, in reality... Now, one thing is if the, if the woman is on birth control pill for 10, 15 years and stops, of course, she's not going to be able to get pregnant the same way as she did 15 years ago, just as a f- factor of now Age. her being 15 years older. And yeah. hormonal changes. Yeah, I mean, so in, in reality, like, that can be said to be true. If a woman stayed on birth control pills from age 30 to 50 and she stops the birth control pill at 50 years old, well, yeah, yeah, most likely she's not going to be able to get pregnant at 50 years old. Yeah. Yeah, you can't blame the birth control pill. Yeah. But the age is going up. I mean, women are getting pregnant at a higher age now than ever before. What is the high risk Mid-40s. now as far as age? So um, age is obviously as we age, you know, our body doesn't work as it used to, you know. So pregnancy is one of the most demanding things on the body. It is one of the most demanding things on the body. So you have to uh, uh, take that into account. Um, now, there's no cutoff for age. Really, at any, a woman can get pregnant at any age so long as she has a uterus. Now, even, I mean... So the eggs, uh, I mean, the 
eggs last throughout a woman's lifetime? The or? eggs can, I mean, uh, the egg doesn't have to come from that woman. You know, now I think the oldest woman who's had a delivery now is 73 in India. And that came from donated eggs, wow. right? So uh, the donated eggs... So she can eggs, still carry the baby. But so long not. as there's a normal uterus, um, so long as there's a normal uterus, yeah, that, uh, you know, pregnancy can be carried. And so long as that woman is healthy and... and uh, How about with their own eggs? At what ages have you seen a woman get pregnant with their own eggs? I myself uh, have seen that the oldest with treatment was 44. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't pregnancies out there with their own eggs that may have happened. Theoretically, so long as there are eggs left in the ovaries, and if that egg is normal and and a sperm, a normal sperm ended up coming into the picture and fertilizing that egg, well, a pregnancy could occur. So theoretically, until a woman hits menopause, she can be pregnant. The likelihood is low, but it still can happen. But eggs do have... Kind of a there's a limited number of eggs that yeah. a woman can produce They're right in a born lifetime. With it. Well, born no, you're with born with the eggs, right? So, you know, we make new sperm every day, mm-hmm. millions of sperm. Pro- since we started at seven thirty, we probably <laughs> have made several million sperm sitting here, right? So, we're <laughs> between <laughs> the four of us, I'm sure we're past a million. Dollars. How do we confirm that? Now? <laughs> let's not let's not go there. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, guys are making sperm every day. Yeah. Women are born with a finite number of eggs. Mm-hmm. No new eggs are made after birth. In fact, the most number of eggs that a woman will have is while she is still in her mother's womb. Wow. Okay, so... As a fetus, basically? Yeah, as in utero, as a fetus. So, like, our mothers, the egg that made us was made in our mother's ovary... At their birth. No. Before. Before. So the, while they were still inside our grandmother. Oh, wow. So re- imagine Man. like you're, the egg that made you, the egg that made you, the egg that made me, and the egg that made you was actually made while our mom was still in utero inside, our, inside oh, her mother. Interesting. God, that says a lot. Yeah. So think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So... so my grandma was pregnant with me too. I guess. <laughs> no, <that> was, <laughs> technically. Well, your, your grandmother was pregnant with your mom right. as your mom's organs were being formed in, in front yeah. of her. The eggs were also being formed in your mom's ovary, and the eggs that made us were made while our mom pre-fertilized. Was, yeah. How I many mean, eggs are made, like on average? So uh, the most number of eggs that a woman will have is somewhere around seven to eight million, and that's about halfway through pregnancy. So, mm-hmm. and by the time you know our mom was born, she was already down to one to two million eggs. So a woman is born with approximately one to two million eggs. You see, so, so right before birth, you, you the biggest number of loss of eggs occurs even before birth. Before birth, yeah. And then every time they menstruate, basically, they're... Even <coughs> before menstruation, even before puberty, eggs are being lost. Eggs are still being lost. Eggs are being lost. The only difference is pre-puberty to post-puberty is that ovulation is occurring. You see, so what happens is, is that every month, a group of eggs wake up. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, all right, it's our turn this month. Fight to, through. To be that egg that's going to get fertilized, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, they start a race, but one of them, sometimes two, 
will be the ones who are going to win that race, and they ovulate, they release. And if there happens to be sperm around that fertilizes that egg, then, um, you know, that, that, will, uh, that egg will fertilize and, and a pregnancy will occur. Is it true that the egg only has about three hours to fertilize, whereas the sperm can last in for about eight days? So it's between the eight days of the sperm being alive and the egg fertilizing has about a three-hour window. Is that how it works, or...? Um, there, there is truth to that, but it's not as short as three hours. I mean, the egg yeah. can be around, you know, for uh, half a day or a day even, you know, but the sperm can stay in the system for days, days. you know. But it is, the concept is true. The egg doesn't wait around for the sperm. Egg releases, <laughs> you know, saying, Explains right. a lot. Explains a lot. Explains a lot. <laughs> says, I'm here, and, uh, you know. Who wants me? We always yeah. keep his waiting. <laughs> <laughs> but the sperm can stay in the system, uh, you know, um, the cervical, uh, the, the cervix has little crypts in there, mm-hmm. and at the right time of the month, there's this copious, uh, nutritious cervical mucus that's supposed to be there to allow the sperm to to kind of stay active and, and be nurtured, and the ster- sperm can remain in the reproductive system for, um, you know, for days, uh, okay. And and so yeah, there is truth to that. No, it seems like the more I understand this, the more I realize how less of a chance. I mean, it's so unlikely to really get pregnant when you think about it. I mean, you've got like Dude, there was a such f- a small window. It depends. Of time. Some women you can just pass by them and they get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> One of a, a friend of ours was like. You know, they were trying for a couple of months, and he was like, dude, it's not working, it's not working, something's going on. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, bro, What's be patient. Way? They were trying to have a baby, bro. That's the topic of the day. Oh, so That's well, not going on. <laughs> the barbecue grill is not turning yeah, on. The though. propane is out. <laughs> so he's like, you know, we're having, an, he's like, he was like, I think we're having an issue. I think we're, I'm like, you know, I'm like, dude, just calm down. I'm like, are you guys doing it at the right time? Yeah, bro. He's like, but what do you mean by the right time? He's like, you know, come home, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I go, no, no, bro. I'm like, listen, understand what I'm trying to say. I'm like, are you, are you, are you, are you, are you is she ovulating when you're doing it? He's like, what do you mean by ovulating? I go, listen, man. I'm like, the way it works is it's not, you don't have sex and then the wife's pregnant. There's a certain time period right. where she can actually have the, you know, she can get pregnant. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's like, so you're telling me there's a certain time gap that we're supposed to do it. I'm like, yes. I'm like, haven't you seen Friends? I'm like, you know, <laughs> he's like, okay, I got to talk to Friends was your reference? That's well, where you learned? Th- well, we, we were both Friends fans. That's why. Uh, so he was like, all right, you gotta, I got to talk to my wife tonight. Two months later, he goes, hey, bro, we're pregnant. I'm like, I told you, man. So he's you like, saw the big issue, are right? Yeah, you know what? Yeah. Hey, doctor, are you hiring? <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's actually... I mean, that's a very good point, and education is a big part of it. And um, really, I have had cases where all I've, you know, all I've had to do is say, draw a diagram and say, look, you know, this is period to period. This is ovulation. This is the fertile window. Mm. This is your homework. On this day, on this day, on this day, on this day. Set the alarms? Come Mm. back in three months if it hasn't happened, and they... Oftentimes, just like you said, back. well, no, they call back saying, "Hey, thank you." It happened. I mean, there's even apps for it now, man. Yeah, yeah. where you know a woman will kind of you know see when she's ovulating, and you know it's like time to get to work. It just it's just it's not the way. I look at it like this: getting pregnant isn't as easy as people think it is. 
And right. it's, it's it seems like the people who don't want to get pregnant get pregnant a lot easier than committed couples and married couples. Who I think they're overthinking it as well. That that could they're, possibly. I, th- I think yeah. they're overthinking it. It's kind of like let loose. Even hey, have a cocktail, <laughs> have a drink. <laughs> do you let think? Loose. What do you think about the numbers? The SAR is more people being infertile today compared to maybe 50s, 60s. What is it about today that more people are having issues having kids? Well, actually, the rate of infertility really hasn't changed. It's remained constant. I mean, there are variations from different parts of the world. Um, But let's say in the United States, the rate has remained pretty constant. But what's changed is um, the age at where, you know, society is beginning to procreate. And as we age, it becomes more difficult. Mm-hmm. So if we were to compare age for age, like if a couple who's in their 30s is trying now with a couple who are in their 30s were trying back in 1950, the rates are going to be the same. But in 1950, everyone was done by the time they were 30. Mm. They already had two, three kids, and they were done having families. By the time that they were in their 40s or 50s, they were becoming grandparents, right? Sure. Now it's not unusual I mean, average age of my patients is, you know, late 30s, early 40s for the woman Mm. and, you know, the guys as well. So, you know, that was not something that was 50 years ago that prevalent, whereas, uh, you know, whereas now it is very prevalent. And hence, with age, we're going to have a higher absolute number of couples who are having a difficulty in conceiving. People are getting married late as well. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. Exactly. Saying, but yeah. then you read a lot of stats, and I don't know if this is true or not, where, for example, they say how our grandparents, our grandfathers, had double the sperm count that we do today. So, if the infertility rate was the same, how is it that the, for, for a simple example, as the sperm count is about f- averages 40 million today, I think that was the number where in the 60s it was around 80 million. That is true. <coughs> sperm is declining. Sperm parameters in general, mm. count and quality, is declining. Um, we and don't you know contribute why. that to. We don't know exactly why, but we think that there are um, environmental factors um, uh, that are being impacted by what we refer to as endocrine disruptors. Mm-hmm. So endocrine disruptors are these molecules that go and act like hormones that... Um, you know, they may mimic estrogen or they may mimic uh, testosterone and not allow testosterone to actually bind to the receptor and do its job because this other molecule is occupying the receptor and won't let that hormone. And these molecules can be coming from plastics, let's say, can be coming from, you know, uh, lotion that we use. Uh, just the other day I was reading a paper on, on lavender oil Right, lavender oil is is apparently a potent endocrine disruptor that mimics estrogen. You know, so if you use lavender oil or lavender lotion or anything in it, you may be inadvertently taking in estrogen or an estrogen-like you know molecule. And this study was showing um, this community that uses a lot of lavender oil in kids, and they were seeing that those children were developing premature breast development, 
right? Even in, wow. even in boys. No, this is in girls. No, no, girls. Yeah. That's so, um, so hence, you know, then and the conclusion was once they looked into why this is happening, they saw that oh, okay, so here is the estrogen levels were becoming higher than they should be at that age, and what drives breast development around the time of puberty is when the ovaries begin to make estrogen. So. Similarly, there's a lot of uh, molecules in our environment today that we think they're safe. They could be in a plastic bag. They could be in packaging of some sort of a food that we do. It could be the toothpaste we're using or the the package of the toothpaste comes in. You know, I mean, these endocrine disruptors are all over us that may be contributing to this. I would say like even the Wi-Fi's and now the 5G's that are going to be, you know, being built out, all of this is probably going to have even more more of a negative effect on fertility in the future. Possibly, I don't know enough about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wi-Fi or or you know those types 5G. of mm-hmm. impacts. Yeah. What about as far as like diet or um, even like <coughs> alcohol consumption, smoking? I mean, I've heard that smoking can even reduce the uh, sperm count. Is that true? So um, when it comes to lifestyle, obviously, everybody should maintain a healthy lifestyle, right? And there's a number of main pillars to a healthy lifestyle, diet being, you know, or nutrition being one of the, you know, most important, proper hydration, exercise, getting lots of rest, that's important, you know, staying the, the, the correct amount of exercise, not too much, not too little, Um Smoking obviously has never been shown to be helpful with anything. It's only detrimental. It, 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 um, you know, we've been, it's been demonstrated to negatively impact most parts of hearts, vessels, any type of cancer. Smoking has an association with it. Um, heart attacks, strokes. Fertility for men is is definitely been shown to be neg- negatively impacted. Fertility of women, it is catastrophic. You know? Really? Smoking? Yeah, Even I mean, secondhand smoking. We, you know, we make new, like I said, we make new sperm every day, yeah. right? The the shelf life of that sperm is about 90 days. So the sperm that will is made, you know, tonight will be ejaculated 70 to 90 days from now, right? Ah, so, so it's not immediately no. ejaculated. So... So kind of that. So that there is that. Does it mature in that period? It matures of time? exactly. It's made today. It takes some time for that sperm to be to mature, and be ready to be. You Active. know. Yes. So, so let's say we did something today. We just sat around here and just sat all night smoking. You know, cigarette after cigarette after cigarette. We damaged that sperm production process. It'll show two three months down the line. Oh wow! But if we quit. If Three we quit, later. yeah, like, you know, next week you cleaned yourself out. Theoretically, next week's batch. Fresh batch. Fresh batch. Right? <laughs> so, but not so with, with, with uh, parts of the body that do not regenerate, mm-hmm. right? Once the damage is done, the, the damage is done. Now, I oversimplified that just to demonstrate a point. There's also the stem cells that make sperm that are, that are there. They're the progenitor cells. That can be damaged, and if they are damaged, then they're giving rise to not as normal sperm. Poor quality sperm. Yeah. Mm. 
now let's talk about eggs, though. Eggs, how we said that the, the number of eggs is finite, and through the years that number is getting less and less. Now the impact of smoke on the eggs is permanent. No new eggs are being made. Ah, you see, right. so secondhand smoke that uh, a woman may be exposed to, or a woman who is a smoker, is really doing a, you know, uh, disservice in a sense. That that's something. The damage to the eggs is irreversible, and we know that women who are smokers they undergo menopause several years sooner than than non-smokers, mm. indicating that they are accelerating that decline of the egg number faster than the, uh, you know, that the non-smokers. So that that is a big thing. Alcohol again, a um, little controversial. Obviously, no one should be a heavy drinker. Um, I generally recommend, you know, for couples who are trying to get pregnant during that time not to smoke at all and not to drink at all. However, if drinking is like having a drink is serving some sort of a unwinding process, I'm okay with that. You know, in fact, there were there have been some studies who have looked at this, you know, and and a lot of these studies that come on lifestyle and population health come from Scandinavian countries where they keep all the statistics on the population. And some studies from those Scandinavian countries showed that actually, you know, couples who were having a drink or two together occasionally were actually just as fertile, maybe even more fertile, right? In fact, you know, I remember watching the presentation of one of those, you know, authors, and they were speculating like, all right, you have a drink. It makes your partner more palatable, more tolerable. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe you, you know. Does that have anything to do with it? um, It was a joke, but, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, um, uh, a a moderate drink or two here, uh, you know, probably isn't as bad. Mm -hmm. Smoking, not so. Not so. Even if it's like hookah or cigars? Hookah's even worse, worse actually. Really? Yeah. Hookah's even worse because, you know, you said typically in one sitting, you're consuming a whole lot more nicotine. Um, So, I mean, I would, I mean, that's, hookah's like, I cringe when I hear, you know, someone says hookah. (laughs) I heard Um, you smoking like a pack of cigarettes worth in an hour of hookah. Something it's it is a high level, a very high level of consumption, and uh, you know I really cringe when when you know I'm asking a patient that you smoke, and they say no, and then they're like, "Well, we smoke hookah." I'm like, "Okay, that's first of all that's smoking. You can't claim no." <laughs> number one, number two, um, you know it's just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. Yeah. Can can you discuss a little bit about, <clears throat> you talked about how there's the different processes, IUI and IVF, but since obviously everybody's not going to be seeking you for this type of treatment, just so they have an understanding of uh, what to expect in the process and what to look for, whether it be <clears throat> after how many IUIs you recommend in IVF, and then you mentioned uh, you know, prior to the show about genetic testing and the embryos and all that. So people have an understanding whether, again, they do it here domestically in L.A. or in in the States or they decide to go overseas to uh, seek treatment because it's maybe more cost-effective for them. What are some of the things that key thing uh, factors they need to be looking for as these are kind of make-it-or-break-it uh, scenarios where you want to make sure this is tested for this and that, 
to increase the chances of the pregnancy, a healthy pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, so IUI and IVF, these are things that are, um, you know, treatment options, obviously. And it, it all it's all based on coming up with a plan that's like custom made for that couple or that individual, actually, you know, because there are single women who opt to do this. There are single men who opt to do this by themselves. So mm-hmm. most are couples. Um so we do the, the full evaluation, um, and then accordingly, we decide what is the best treatment for that couple. Um, IUI is a common, common one. It's called, it stands for intrauterine insemination. So essentially what we do with an IUI is we first um, uh, do ovulation induction, where uh, using some medication we enhance the ovulation process so Mm -hmm. that we know that that woman's ovulation process is going to be healthier or sometimes even she's going to make instead of one egg maybe two eggs that may increase the chances and we monitor that uh, process so that we can pinpoint exactly the day where she's going to be ovulating and on that day we have the husband or male partner bring in the sperm or produce the sperm on in the facility we take that sperm, we wash it, we wash it in such a way that it will weed out the best, strongest swimmers and activate those sperm cells. We concentrate it into a few drops, and then we place those few drops of sperm past the cervix inside the uterus, which will cut down the distance that that sperm has to swim mm. to get to the egg, which is about to release or just has very recently been released, mm-hmm. you know, so it takes about, you know, usually that's, if, if it's the treatment that that couple has decided to do, that will require about three or four visits over the course of a month. Um, the first two, three visits is for us to pinpoint exactly when ovulation is taking place and how the egg is growing or the follicle that contains the egg is developing. And then the last visit is typically the day of the insemination. And then two weeks later, if that woman, she misses her period, then we do the pregnancy test to see if she's pregnant. And that far, sounds far, uh, more less, far less invasive than a, uh, the IVF, correct? Or it is um, less involved and it is less invasive insofar as the fertilization is occurring inside the body. Um, we're not removing the eggs. So everything is occurring in, inside the body. Now, earlier we were talking about uh, what are all the steps that are required for there to be a pregnancy. So what the IUI is doing is we're, is assuming that most of these steps are okay for them to occur. All we're doing is we're bringing the egg and the sperm closer, closer hoping that the, the sperm will still be able to swim, mm-hmm. will still be able to find the egg, will be able to penetrate through the shell of the egg and fertilize the egg. And also that fertilized egg will be able to come down the fallopian tube and implant in the uterus, Mm -hmm. right? IVF, the philosophy is different. All those steps that we talked about, we're actually going to do it ourselves. Artificially, basically. In the lab. We're we're not going to allow, you know, that to be done for chance. We're actually going to do it. So what we do is... We stimulate the ovaries. We watch the eggs grow. Once the eggs are ready, in a similar way as as the IUI, but we're stimulating more eggs. Mm -hmm. So 
Once the eggs are ready, now we go in and we remove the eggs from the ovaries. Once the eggs are out, then we manually fertilize each egg. We hand select the best looking sperm from the ejaculate. Say, all right, that sperm looks great. Let's pick this one for Winner. this egg. Yeah, so for each, let's say there we got 10 eggs. Yeah. Like this morning I did an egg retrieval. We got 21 eggs. So That's a lot, no? 21. That's, more, that's above average. So, yeah. you know, this afternoon the embryologist will look for each egg, will, will, would have selected the most normal-looking sperm and then placed that sperm inside the egg. Tomorrow morning they will check to make sure that those eggs fertilized. And then they get replaced back. Now they, now, they will allow those embryos, those fertilized eggs now are referred to as embryos. They will allow them to develop in a nurturing environment for about a week. You know, by five, six, seven days, they, those, those embryos become into something we refer to as blastocysts. Blastocysts, we, we all were blastocysts at some point, right before we implanted into uh, the uterus, into the womb, right? Mm. So right when those embryos become blastocysts, we can either put them back in the uterus, that's the conventional IVF, or we can do the pre-implantation genetic screening of those embryos. And that's for checking for things like Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, all these chromosomal abnormalities that can occur. So you check before you That's right. It. So you can check that embryo to know if that embryo is healthy, you know, is healthy and then in the next month, Next subsequent uh, cycle, when we have the results of each embryo, let's say, you know, from, from those 21 eggs, we end up with 10 embryos. And we test those 10 embryos. Of those, you know, six of them turn out to be normal. Well, you know, next month we have six embryos to work with. So that couple will decide, all right, we want embryo number one. Great. Embryo number one is a girl. Looks great. So you know the gender at that you point. You know the gender at that point, yeah. Wow, how do you know the gender? <laughs> well, you're checking the chromosomes. Ah, you know, okay. so it's From the, the gender that, yeah. So while you're already checking the chromosomes to yeah. see if they, ha they have Down syndrome, you also take a look under the hood and say, oh, that's a, that's a boy. That's a big as though That was the trippiest part when we were finding out our gender. Yeah. My wife was, you know, we were doing her birthday, and then we were going to do a gender reveal at the same time. But, you know, you couldn't really see. There was, there, there was a heartbeat and everything, but there's no penis, no vagina, nothing. But then she was like, don't worry about it. They're going to do a blood test. They're going to yeah. take my blood. Yeah. You know, they'll find out YY, XY. And then, you know, if there's an X that, you know, I'm not, she was like, I'm not supposed to have an X chromosome in my body. So that tells you. Well, uh, well you know, she has two X chromosomes. She doesn't have a Y I'm sorry, chromosome. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, correct. I'm sorry. Oh, X, 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 Y. She's like, yeah. if, I, I don't know, if I have a Y chromosome. Then it's, it's a, a boy. It's a boy. Yeah. So now, when you say it's so, it's up to the couple whether they do the genetic testing or not. Yeah. But why wouldn't anybody do that? That most point? these days do it, mm -hmm. uh, but not everybody needs it. So the risk of chromosomal abnormalities goes up with age. Okay. Right. So at some age, it hits a point where it makes sense, uh, you know, to do that test. But for very young, you know, let's say. Couples who are using an egg donor, the egg donor is 23, 24 years old. The age of the egg is so young that they can opt out of it safely without impacting, um, you know, the chance of success. But is it worth taking the risk where, I mean, it, the, when you say if the egg is young, mm -hmm. but that embryo can still have, let's say, a Down syndrome, right? It can, it can. So how do you 
take that risk without if there's the opportunity to test it without it, it can and that's a discussion that we have um i mean genetic testing is not done for a number of reasons and and every reason is valid um to that couple they may not believe in that test they might even may be financial that can be financial it can yes. be they may have an ethical objection which is you know these are all very valid valid concerns and reasons any test in medicine also has risks to it, right? Mm. So there are times where the embryologist will say, you know, uh, the embryo quality is such that we don't recommend that test to be done because it may impact that embryo. Uh. Yeah, so, but these days, um, you know, majority will end up doing the genetic test. There's also other, uh, another form of genetic testing that is done on embryos and that's when couples know that they themselves have a genetic condition. So that occurs. You know, mm. We get some couples who come to us that they have no problem getting pregnant. However, they're both carriers of a genetic condition, and, and they have previously have had a child that's impacted by that condition. Right? So, so then what we do in this case is use something that's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where we are selecting embryos and testing the embryos to see which of those embryos is a carrier of that condition, which of it is imp affected by it, and which of it is completely normal. And we would only select the normal embryos to put back in the uterus so they don't pass on that genetic condition to their children. Makes sense. What, what happens to the leftover embryos? That couple decides it's their embryos. Can they, can they have... either donate it or... They can donate it to, it's called embryo adoption. Can they have them implanted in themselves? Maybe they want twins, triplets? Um, triplets we try to avoid. avoid. <laughs> <laughs> Even twins we try to discourage. Um, however, I mean, the, the safest way to go is one at a time. One at a time. It's safest for, you know, most importantly for the mother. And it's safest for the baby, you know, in general. Twins... You know, overwhelming majority of twins do just okay, but still, it is a higher risk. It is a higher risk situation, mm. twice as heavy, you know, on the mother and so on. Yeah. yeah. I think we talked about the fact that if they're identical twins, there's more genetic problems than if they were not identical twins. Yeah, and identical twins are always higher risk. Identical twinning is when one embryo splits into two, and... Um, the risks are, you know, exponentially higher. Sometimes the split doesn't occur evenly. Uh, there's a condition that there's something that they're at risk for that's called twin-to-twin -twin transfusion, where one twin is taking up more of the placenta than the other, so it's getting more of the blood supply and the nutrients, oh. and the other is getting less. So um, they, that's, that's, it's a much more of a complicated scenario that w requires and warrants, uh, you know, much closer, uh, follow-up and observation. Yeah. We have a question from one of the, uh, listeners here asking about <clears throat> is, is, are any of these treatments covered by insurance or is it cash? And if, if so, what type of insurance usually covers this? Yeah, some some of these are covered by insurance, and the insurance uh, the scenarios under which insurance covers it is if um, that person or that couple has insurance through their employer, and their employer is a big corporation that is headquartered in a mandated state. So 
there are some states where it's mandatory for these to be covered for these types of treatments. Mm. It's, like, is it referred to as fertility coverage? Yes, or? IVF coverage, or uh, you know, they may have a protocol. They may say, okay, we cover IVF if you failed three IUIs. So first, you have to do three IUIs. If if it doesn't work, then you move on to IVF. But it's like, for example, Massachusetts is a mandated state. Every person who has health insurance has fertility coverage. Through employers, through employers. not individual plans. Any, any, any uh, insurance plan. Oh, even if it's an individual plan. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So let's say that you know somebody works for a company and their headquarters is in Massachusetts. They work for Fidelity. Their headquarters is in you know Boston and their insurance comes out of Boston. Well, you know, they have fertility coverage. Even if they live in California. Even if they live in California. What if an individual couple goes out and buys a PPO plan? They're not employed by... They can they can purchase those plans. I mean, that that's a question that is, you know, probably better suited for an insurance mm-hmm. uh, agent. But, there, but you can't... Essentially, you pay for what right. you're going to get. Yeah. And you can go out and buy an insurance that covers IVF. It is going to be very, very expensive. And... My experience, our experience in California has been most employers do not have coverage. Some of the big companies up north, like Facebook, Google, the, some of these big tech companies, we're seeing that they give an allowance, like $20,000, $30,000, and whatever have you. But um, I'd say 90% of the time, we what we see with our patients is that they don't have coverage for it, and unfortunately, they have to pay out of pocket. So California is not one of those mandated it's states? It's not, no. Okay. I mean, California, it seems like we have so many uh, other health issues, you know, where we're providing free health care for anyone who shows up here. Uh, anyone and everyone. And so we... <laughs> <laughs> it seems like... That's the, true. <laughs> Doc, you just hit us. I'll take my hat <laughs> off now. <laughs> uh, so the dollars are running out before they, they get to uh, IVF, so to speak. Now, uh, your clinic particularly, are you only contracted with PPO or also HMOs as well? We actually don't take any insurance. You don't just take because, Yeah, what we do is we help patients. If they do have coverage, then we will uh, provide all the super bills where they can submit oh, to their insurance and then get reimbursed. Okay. There's so little coverage that it really has not made sense for us to set up a uh, you know billing service where ninety percent of the time you know there's no coverage anyway. Yeah, but then I'm sh- there should probably be some financing options too. I would there figure, are right? there are financing. Yeah. Uh, there Just are, like when you get dental financing. Yeah. Options. similar. Yes, there are there are companies that provide like you know loans to yeah. to finance yeah. this it's like yeah. basically like you know they do for student loans and everything like that they'll probably you know do they put a lien on the baby or <laughs> oh Sorry, remember that video earlier today? What did they they serve the family? Go over here to take to confiscate the baby. We'll hold hold them at our headquarters until you could at least make two payments. Eighty-seven dollar. We're just trying to make light of. uh, We're going to hell. We're all going to hell. (laughs) Sorry, doctor. It's the wise nuts. You know, I I I haven't seen any scenario where I don't know what happened if they didn't pay. I'm sure there have been. Again, you're the doctor. You're not not the insurance carrier. You're not the financer. You just do your job. That's right. That's Uh, you know. I mean, what we we actually don't even know who's paid, who hasn't paid. I mean, I, I. because yeah. even if it's finance, they get paid, and then you deal with the bank, basically. Yeah. See, yeah. but the one thing I want to ask you is this. I mean, 
science alone, you know, we're so advanced as far as, you know, technology and everything for, you know, pregnancy and infertility. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, if the human body or the female body isn't made for pregnancy or it just can't carry a baby, I mean, do you think it's maybe something where it's forced or it's something where it can happen no matter what and our technology is there and we can, you know, a female can carry a child? Well, I, I, I wouldn't, like, focus on the female um, just because there, there isn't anything short of, like, a woman doesn't have a uterus or was born without a uterus, let's say, or was, or was born with an underdeveloped uterus, then, you know, then that's something where she can't carry, right? Or let's say, God forbid, there she had some sort of a tumor on the uterus and the uterus had to be removed. Childhood you know. accidents happen. Or something like that, or you know, during childbirth there was hemorrhage and the uterus had to be removed. So in that scenario, then yeah, there are absolutes where that woman cannot carry, right? Which in that case, that woman could still have children. Just a surrogate carrier or a gestational carrier would have to be used. Right? Yeah. Which to genetics with a surrogate is still your genetics. Yeah, of course. It's just somebody the else's egg, housing the, the, the fetus. Yeah. Yeah. What trips me out is basically like I've I mean I've heard of sperm donors, but as mm. far as like an egg donor, like. I would have. I, this is the first time I've heard where you know the egg can be donated as well. I've seen, not see. I've known of uh, women in the past where uh, they've talked about how they were not married at a certain age, and they had their eggs frozen so that when they yep. do get, so that it's really? a younger egg. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that when they get married, let's say in their late thirties or forties, their eggs are still thirty-year-old eggs, not thirty-eight or forty. But see, doctor, let me ask you this. Okay, let's say, for example, a woman does freeze her eggs at the age of, call it 25, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a good number. Mm-hmm. And then at the age of 37, she decides, you know what, I want to get pregnant, uh, we're ready. And you basically fertilize the 25-year-old egg with the 37-year-old husband's sperm, mm-hmm. and you put it inside the woman. Now, as far as the baby being developed... Are there any risks or is it basically literally a 25-year-old person's or female's egg being just grown inside a 37-year-old woman's body? Yeah. Does I mean, the body basically... First of all, a 25-year-old, um, if a woman freezes their eggs at 25 years old, that that's like an ideal scenario which almost never happens. Um Unfortunately, by the time a woman comes wanting to freeze their eggs, they're already almost 40. And we, we say, well, we could do it, but, you know, the likelihood of it working for you is low. Mm. Now, um, in reality, really, it's, it's a, and, and, you know, our, our field of reproductive medicine um, I think needs to do a better job of um, educating, um, you know, educating society in a in a sensitive way. In a sensitive way that there are differences. I mean, it's easy for us, you know, uh, a bunch of guys sitting around talking about reproductive potential when. Um, you know, for men, we're making new sperm every day, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, but in reality. Um, um, the field of reproductive medicine has to do a better job in raising more awareness, um, especially in women who are going down professional routes to 
at least um, make available that knowledge saying there are options. There are options because far too many times that's exactly what I see. Somebody who went through that professional route, followed all the best things to do, went to all the best schools, kept themselves healthy, you know, finally settled down and they blink. Now they're 38, 39 years old and, you know, the best reproductive years, the best quality eggs are gone, Mm. you see. So, but to come back to your uh, question is, yeah, I mean, if a 37-year-old woman came and they had frozen their eggs at 25, we don't necessarily have to use those eggs right away. We can take a look and see at that age of 37 to see what her ability is to get pregnant on her own or, you know, to get pregnant with conventional uh, options that are available, saving those frozen eggs as a last... Last case scenario. Last resort because, you know, she may want to have two kids, three kids, four kids. So even if at, let's say, with that example, if at 37... You could still find, say, 10 eggs. Of but course. she has 25 frozen from... Let's say she has another 10 frozen from the age of 25. Mm-hmm. Which, in an ideal situation, would you use? Well, if it was a one-time thing, mm-hmm. and I would go for the 25-year-old uh, eggs just because, you know, their reproductive potential is much higher. I see. You know what this reminds me of? I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Gattaca. No. Okay, Gattaca is a movie uh, about space travel, but what they do is whoever can actually go into space has to be super, super healthy. Mm-hmm. So what they would do is they would basically fertilize, the, basically, they would create the perfect baby or the perfect human. So what they would do is they would pick the sperm, the eye color, the hair color, the muscles, everything, and they would fertilize the mother's egg and then they would implant it into the mother. Before sending them out? No, basically to create to the perfect, create the perfect, perfect, human, perfect to human to, to send them to space. And there was wow. these two brothers where one of the brothers was naturally born and the other one was uh, basically made into the mm-hmm. perfect baby. And they would always clash. They would always clash. And it's has it gone to the point where you can actually create the perfect baby? Where it's like you can pick the sex, you can pick the eye color and all that stuff? Or is no. technology um, not there yet? I mean, the technology is there, but is it ethically, you know, acceptable? No. I mean, we do it to prevent the transmission of disease. So we can screen those embryos and make sure that we're not passing on. uh, Defective. Like asthma. I don't know. Not asthma. These are, uh, uh, asthma, we don't exactly know what causes asthma. Uh There may be a genetic predisposition, but mostly it's environmental. But, um, But serious things like cystic fibrosis, let's say. Tay-Sachs disease, um, you know, uh, thalassemias, hemophilias. Uh, these are like serious, serious genetic conditions mm-hmm. that can be screened for. In fact, what we do, what's recommended now for any couple who's looking to get pregnant, not just infertility, when they go to their OBGYN saying, hey, doc, we're going to begin to try to get pregnant, well, it's recommended that that couple have a blood test that shows if they are a carrier for a genetic condition. Now, if we dig deep enough, we're all carriers of something, right? Our carrier status doesn't impact our health. doesn't mean that we are, we're affected by that disease. We're just a carrier. But if, let's say, you know, me and my wife or my partner are both carriers of the same genetic condition, 
then now there's a risk that the baby's going to have the full-blown disease. Wow. You know, because for each gene, we have two copies. So some diseases, if you have one normal copy, you're normal. You don't have the disease. Even if the second one is abnormal, that's, that means it's a, you're a carrier. But all you need is one normal gene to be normal, right? But when it comes to pass on those genes, you're either going to pass on the normal one or, the, or the abnormal one. Now, let's say that my wife is also a carrier, has one normal and one has one abnormal. And if I passed on the abnormal and she passed on the abnormal, well, guess what? The baby has two abnormal genes, mm. and now that baby has the full-blown disease. Mm. And you're able to test for all these. We're the able to test month. this. We're, well, we're able to test this before pregnancy. First of all, we would test the parents to see if they're carriers of the same genetic condition. And if they are, then through doing IVF and through doing pre-implantational genetic diagnosis, we can tell that if they had 10 embryos, which embryos got the normal gene, which got the abnormal gene, and which ones are the carriers. And accordingly say, hey, these embryos got both of the abnormal genes, so these we cannot use. And we would only use the ones that are normal or are, have the carrier status. Now, you mentioned something about ethics. What was the ethics talk that you were mentioning about? Well, I mean, I think that th this type of uh, going through all these steps of treatments and intervention, you know, invasive steps, so to speak, just for something like eye color and hair color. <laughs> I see, okay. You know, would you're, be very. Not custom ordering a car. Yeah. No, no, no. Again, I was <laughs> referring happens. to a movie. It's still, it's still happens. Yeah. It doesn't. No, I mean, the technology is available, it's just commercially not there. I mean, there aren't anyone who is saying, hey, I'm, I, I, I'm offering this. Uh, but theoretically, yes, so long as a trait is chosen by a gene, we can select for that gene by, you know, the, the same steps that I talked about. But it's just not wouldn't be done. It would be an, a, a highly... Immoral, maybe? Uh, yeah, over... Uh, use of a strong technology that's there to really, you know, positively impact someone's health and, you know, shouldn't be used for things like hair color or eye color. You're or, playing God, yeah. literally. No, I mean, that's that's close to it. When you <laughs> let's talk about it, how you save marriages, for example, a lot of people might stay together because you help them get that baby they're having a hard time getting i'm not sure if that's i mean i don't look at it that way and marriage is a you know uh, they can have a baby and still divorce <laughs> that's, that's true right. but <laughs> absolutely right or they cannot have a baby and and stay, and, and stay together i mean having a that baby should too. not de de define a couple it should not define an individual fertility should not you know define saying hey i'm complete because i can have a baby no people people can be you know, complete without needing to procreate yeah. or wanting to procreate or having to procreate. You know, I mean, society puts a lot of emphasis and pressure on it, but by no means should it define that person. Absolutely. There's a misconception. A lot of people say, well, a lot of our older people, as far as our grandparents or maybe even some of our parents say, you know what, if you're having problems, have a baby. It'll solve the problem. Course, no, yeah, that's no, right. no, bigger, that's not, that's not, <laughs> that doesn't solve the problem. That actually can make the problem worse. And in essence, I mean, it's not only affecting you now. Now that problem might even, you know, well, it will. It will affect your child, your future yeah. child. Now, as far as the genetic testing that you're doing, are mm -hmm. you able to also 
alter uh, alter any, let's say, predispositions of, let's say, a, a, a genetically they're inclined to have other diseases such as cancer or multiple sclerosis or something that we see on a day-to-day basis that we're more familiar with. Are autism. we able to... Autism or what? How about are diabetes? You, is that something you guys can uh, Are you able to alter any of that with from the genetic testing and... Well, let's, I mean, let me make a distinction between uh, altering and testing. Now, altering is when, you know, we know that that gene is defective and we're taking that gene and turning it into a normal gene. Correct. You know, now, there are technologies that allow that to happen. They're experimental. And the technology is, you know, you, you, you guys may have heard uh, CRISPR technology, which is a way where, you know, you can edit the gene. Mm-hmm. You know, and hence you can take an embryo who has an abnormal gene and then change it to a normal gene, right? So this is available, you know, experimentally, but it's not available, you know, uh, for humans uh, for clinical use. And it, and it may be become, you know, available in the, in the coming decades or it may not be in our lifetime, but it is there, you know. Now, the concept that we we're talking about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis it's not altering it but it's just knowing ahead of time which of the embryos have that has that genetic mutation so now if if we and you talked about diabetes and cancer anything that is determined by a genetic mutation or by a gene can be selected for right so most cancers are multifactorial um, but there are genetic hereditary cancer syndromes for which we can select. Wow. You know, BRCA being one of them. BRCA is a mutation that increases the risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Angelona, uh, Angelina Jolie has BRCA, for mm-hmm. example, and that's why she went and got mastectomies and uh, ophorectomies, but that is a genetic condition, and if somebody has that, there's a 50% chance that they're going to pass on that genetic mutation to their child, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so then, you know, and that's transmitted in a way that we refer to as autosomal dominant. It's a dominant mutation. So you know how I said if you have one normal, then you're good? Well, in this case, no. If you have one abnormal, then you're, you have the condition, right? So, so there are ways to some cancers that have a genetic mutation associated with it we can actually test and say, okay, this embryo will have the cancer mutation. Wow. So let's put back this embryo that doesn't. So your child will not have the same risk as that parent who has a higher risk of developing cancer. That's crazy. What about like autoimmune diseases? Anything like that? So long as it's an autoimmune condition that has a specific gene to it, then yes. Uh, has a genetic mutation to it that's identifiable, then yes. But, I mean, again, autoimmune conditions, largely we don't know what causes them. There may be some genetic predispositions, but not a specific mutation. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that you recommend, for example, ideally a woman to have their egg frozen at 25. You wouldn't recommend the same for men at any age because... Even though we produce millions of sperm on a daily basis, but the chances of whether it's an accident or something happening, injury, anything. Stronger sperm, uh, younger maybe? Yeah, does that, is that also recommended for men? And, and what are, 
and do people a lot of people not do that because of costs associated with it or is it just lack of education like you mentioned well i mean uh, as far as sperm is concerned it's not done as much just because you know there is sperm production going mm-hmm. on every day now um there are some uh, circumstances under which that freezing sperm is highly recommended, especially in in um, gentlemen who are about to undergo some sort of a treatment that may damage or wipe out sperm production, uh, cancer being one of them. Right. Now, you know, the field of oncology has been great. Uh, cancer survivorship is up, um, you know, but... Many of the cancers that are uh, being diagnosed are in individuals who are in their reproductive years, right? So, and they may not have had all the children that they want to have. This is both in women and men, right? So, in that case, yes, it is strongly recommended that before that man undergoes the chemotherapeutic or, you know, radiation therapy or the surgical therapy, maybe especially if it's a, you know, reproductive tumor, that they should have their sperms frozen. Um, and, you know, it's sad, but I, I see this again and again. I mean, at least once or twice a month, I have a patient who is impacted by cancer, mm-hmm. you know, as a fertility doctor. Right. Both men and women. The women are seeking, you know, either to freeze their eggs if they're single, or if they're married, we free to get the eggs out and make embryos and freeze the embryos. And for the guys, it is we strongly recommend to go and before they end up going to treatment to try and, you know, ejaculate as many times as possible and take those uh, samples and and uh, freeze them and bank them. So, How about for cancer? Um, yeah, that's, now that I mentioned, it's very obvious, especially with chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. But how about if a, if a male has, let's say, some type of autoimmune disease where some of the treatment options are Same. high dosages of that's right. Same uh, total, steroids or right, right? gonadotoxic treatments, any, um, yeah. and that you know any any type of medical condition uh, that is going to require a gonadotoxic treatment, they should have a at least a discussion about it. Mm. At least a discussion. Now I've had patients with cancer who, you know. They were in a, they got the diagnosis. They were hospitalized. Their condition was that before their treatment, they weren't going to be able to produce, and you know they couldn't even leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. It's understandable. There are these, you know, um, extreme situations that don't, we don't have the luxury of saying, "Hey, we have to hold everything and have sp- freeze some sperm or freeze some eggs." Mm-hmm. You know, freezing sperm is a lot easier. All it takes is you know you ejaculate. It's washed and and frozen. Freezing eggs is much more complicated. It takes a month, right? We have to stimulate the ovaries, mature the eggs, and take the eggs out. So we may not have the the adequate time. There's hormonal treatment involved. There is hormonal treatments involved. It's it's just like IVF, at least the first part, before before fertilizing the eggs. But that's that's a uh, fertility preservation is an important, um, you know, important... Uh, issue, especially for individuals who have been impacted by cancer or other medical problems that uh, may require gonadotoxic treatments. Now, now we we emphasized a lot about the IVF process, but which seems to be focused heavily on the woman. How about if the man has low sperm count or the mortality is low? What options are there in, tr- in terms of sperm retrieval or uh, increasing the sperm count, or how wh- what what's available to men? 
Yeah, that's that's a very good question. And there are conditions where sperm production is taking place, you know, in the testicle. But for whatever reason, that sperm that's produced isn't reaching the ejaculate, isn't coming out. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a blockage in the tube or, you know, the actual environment where the sperm is being produced is fine, but the environment where the sperm is maturing is not. So production is there, but it's not able to mature and come out, you know, in a normal capacity. Well, you know, in that case, what we try to do is we try to get um, sperm directly from the testicle, you know, and there are a number of procedures where, you know, we can go in um, and there's, you know, uh, a, a number of acronyms that we use, TESI, TESA, PESA, you know, these are all, um, you know, different procedures where essentially we're going into the testicle, either opening the testicle um, and, you know, micro-dissecting the te- testicle and removing... <laughs> He's feeling the pain already. <laughs> <laughs> removing uh, the sperm um, under a, a microscope. This mm-hmm. is a microsurgical procedure, um, you know, or placing a needle, you know, <laughs> and um, extracting yeah. sperm that way. Of course, under anesthesia, you know. Uh, You'll be knocked out, Ed. Don't worry. You won't feel a thing. <laughs> Not for you, but local anesthesia? Or? Actually, these some of these are done under local anesthesia. Yeah. So the region is completely numb. So, okay. uh, um, you know, Don't I... shake your head like you're volunteering your No, no, no. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. see, it's not that, it's not as bad as you... It's, oh, you're numb, Ed. You're not going to feel anything. Yeah, I mean, you know, all, it's, it's... I mean, look, it's not a pleasant uh, thing, you know, um, but we don't just do it for the hell of it. We do it out of need, you okay. know. Uh, That's exactly what I was so, about to say. Yeah. And do any of these procedures cause long-term negative effects on, let's say, on uh, whether it's testosterone levels or impotency or anything of that nature? Uh, theoretically, no, because the amount of tissue that is removed and uh, is very small. Mm-hmm. And um, presumably what's removed are these tubules that make sperm, right? And really small, like uh, almost microscopic amount of tissue is uh, is removed now. But also, if you know you remove part of the testicle, yeah, potentially, you know, there, it may have some uh, reduction in future potential to make sperm. Obviously, because mm-hmm. you remove that part, um, scarring pain those are some long-term issues that can occur but f- you know f- over for the most part you know there aren't any uh, lasting issues lasting. let me ask you this doctor uh, as far as when you know a woman ties her tubes and she doesn't want to get pregnant anymore that's irreversible no, no it's really reversible. it's reversible yeah, you, can, you can yeah wow Okay, no, okay, forget that question then. But yeah. I, I want to ask you this. Now, vasectomy. No, yeah, I, yes. Now, when a man gets a vasectomy and then reverses back, yeah. sperm count, does it drop or? It can, potentially. I mean, if you have a vasectomy reversal, it, you know, may not go completely back to normal. But, but still, I mean, plenty of those gentlemen will end up, you know, fathering. Uh, One or two. 
Yeah, or it, it will have enough sperm in the ejaculate that we can do one of the conventional fertility yeah. treatments, whether it be IUI or IVF. Mm. Yeah. I had uh, no idea a woman was reversible, man. I thought once a woman ties her tubes, it's... No, it's well, reversible. you can, you can. I mean, it's a surgical procedure where we go in, again, using a microscope and, you know, very uh, fine sutures. And if, you know, there was enough tube, fallopian tube to work with, we would just trim the edges where the tubes were cut. You know, it's not tied. It's actually cut. Yeah, <laughs> well, so, yeah obviously. I mean. Yeah, so we, 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 we trim the edges, and then we bring the layers back together. And if there's enough, you know, adequate amount of tube, fallopian tube left, then, you know, reproductive potential is re- restored. Sometimes, I mean, again, fallo- uh, you know, tubal um, reanastomosis depends on what condition that fallopian tube was left in. Makes sense. You know, so, um, if you have a crappy, so if a crappy doctor doesn't <laughs> yeah. know what he's doing, or not that he doesn't know what he's doing, but if he does a bad job as far as with the sutures. Well, you know, I mean, you can make the argument of saying if a woman really wanted her to tie her tubes because she just wanted it to be permanent, then, you know, the whole fallopian tube should be removed, right? Then mm-hmm. that makes it permanent. You can't go back and make a new fallopian tube. But, yeah. But fallopian tubes can be uh, re-anastomosed if there is adequate amount of fallopian tube left. I, I had a friend who was in his 50s, um, and I didn't know him at the time when he was in his 30s, but apparently he froze his sperm in his 30s, mm. and then he got a vasectomy because he, you know, he liked to be free and clear with, <laughs> with the women. So <laughs> and I asked him, I said, why'd you get a vasectomy? There is easier ways. You know, because man. it's the safest, because it's the safest route for me. I have it frozen. If ever I want to have kids, I have, you know, frozen sperm, plenty of them that I could, uh, vasectomy is the, I think is the, is the hundred, I'd say it's a hundred percent for sure. You're not going to, there's no way you can get the woman pregnant. hundred percent. Well, let's ask the doctor. Is that true? Well, I mean, you know, in medicine, we we rarely say a hundred percent. Ninety-nine point nine, doc. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I I wouldn't necessarily recommend someone to get a vasectomy. Just, uh, I mean, they could get a vasectomy if they're done having children, but not uh, if if. Uh, <laughs> Not for the purposes of just you know everyday contraception, uh, <laughs> becoming Austin Powers. Well, he was yeah. James Bond, <laughs> and he was he was relatively, I guess, wealthy at the time as well. So mm-hmm. that was another way of protecting his assets, where he knew nobody can. He uh, gets to choose who gets a yeah, part of that pie. Yeah, basically. yeah. That I was just, his philosophy. I just feel like that guy was just on a power trip at the age of thirty. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I so. mean, I, that's that's uh, yeah. again. I mean, assets, assets. We're all going to pass our assets. Uh, you Take know, it with him to somebody, or uh, and yeah. then and, yeah. His philosophy was like to not you know randomly impregnate some woman who. Or who intentionally gets pregnant to well, get you know, some no, type no, of financial? No, nobody should randomly yeah. impregnate <laughs> the. You know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll t- look. One of the guys that he used to hang out with was Larry Flint, and he threw parties for Larry Flint. So you can imagine. Uh-huh. He, uh, he <laughs> what went on during the parties? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he must man. have had a shortage of ladies <laughs> yeah. around. <him>. He, <laughs> he did. Uh, yeah, I guess you know. I mean, we all have our own problems. That's right. right. <laughs> that's that's. I I I shouldn't judge or say that that's, I have an opinion. Yeah. Not uh, not having been in that type of a scenario <laughs> with that kind of problems. Oh gosh. How, how about we take off our 
medical scientific hat now and talk about a little unless you have anything you think we haven't covered and yeah, no, talk a little bit about your travels because i know you've last few years you spent quite a bit of time outside of the u.s <laughs> yeah yeah i do quite a bit of traveling lately um you know i do a lot of travel to armenia there's uh-huh. uh you know probably last 10 years i've been since 2009 now i guess 11 years i've been going to armenia a couple times a year Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in a number of capacities, um, uh, you know, I've held some leadership positions in several organizations that do some healthcare work in Armenia. Um, in fact, you know, as of late, it, I'm, I'm sort of re-involved with, with, uh, some of the newer initiatives that are taking place, uh, with the new government, the Minister of Health, by the way, from Armenia is coming to town in in March. So mm-hmm. we're organizing some events for for that um, young guy in his thirties, very motivated, all about action. Not of the old regime where there was, you know, all this oligarch, even in healthcare, oligarchs and and you know uh, corruption, corruption in the system. Um, you guys should come and participate in some of the events, actually, you know. Sure. Uh, we're trying to uh, help fundraise to launch a program that's geared to help um, the regions, the Marzas that, that are, you know, that are in desperate need of adequate primary health care and preventative care. So, uh, you know, there's some exciting stuff. Yeah, and I've, I've also done a lot of reproductive medicine work in Armenia, working with some organizations and centers there um mostly mostly you know what i try to do and focus on is helping you know training the doctors there and and helping you know try and build their their network and their you know infrastructure so that um you know they can elevate the quality of care there i mean technology in armenia is growing rapidly i mean are they as advanced as you know, they, we are in the States. Is the technology there as well, or is it kind of, are they still a little bit behind? Because I know you're saying you're training doctors. Well, look, I mean, technology is something that you can acquire, right? It doesn't really, so long as you have the resources, you, you can you can buy it. So it's a matter of having those adequate resources. I can tell you one thing is that Armenia has some very, very smart people. You know, and as much as I go there and I help organize an annual conference for reproductive medicine, I'm also president of an organization that, you know, helps organize a major multi-specialty conference every other year, you know, in Armenia and in the diaspora, where we bring multi-specialty, all kinds of top, top notch world experts. And as much as, you know, I'm there teaching, I always learn something. Right, something that I never learned here in the United States, you know, from from you know our colleagues in Armenia. So um, there's lots of smart doctors in Armenia, and in fact, Armenia doesn't have a shortage of doctors. It has more doctors than per capita than the United States does. Mm-hmm. You know, Armenia has more hospitals and hospital beds than um, you know than than. Uh, U.S. per capita. Anywhere in the United States. Wow. You know, anywhere in the United States. So, I mean, from that standpoint, there's no shortage. But what's needed is um, change in the way that that uh, 
scientists and physicians or healthcare professionals, I, I should say, not just physicians and doctors, the, the way that they approach towards the, or their outlook towards medicine. You know, where here we practice what's called as evidence-based medicine. The steps that we do needs to have some sort of a proof behind it, you know, studied and proven in a scientific model, and then hence we know that, yes, this pill does not work. We tried it. We gave this pill. We gave the placebo. Both of them were the same at the end, so we know that this doesn't work, right? Um, that's just a very basic example of approaches where that mindset we hope to improve. You know, there's a lot of parameters that... Um, can be impacted, whether it is medical education, postgraduate uh, education, as in like residencies and specialty training and fellowship and other, you know, quality parameters within medicine. How about medical information as far as medical sharing, medical communication? Do they have all those in power? I mean, here, doctor can look up anything about their patient real quick. Do they have those technologies available? So, again, that those types of technology can be acquired, right? So that what you're referring to is like EMR, right, electronic medical records. So, you know, you can go and log on to, uh, uh, you know, a portal of some sort, and that may come up. And that same portal you can also have in Armenia. It's not that uh, – it's just a matter of when you prioritize what's needed – you know, in healthcare in Armenia, is that electronic medical record, you know, priority? Um, is it yeah. a priority, or are there other things that are more important, for example, to allocate a finite resources? And that's another problem in that, you know, in Armenia, the allocation towards healthcare is, you know, if you look at worldwide as a percentage of GDP, you know, it's in the bottom 20 percentile. Right. I mean, we have hostile neighbors. We have to defend the borders. There are other issues where, you know, the the national budget is is allocating towards. So healthcare gets a smaller piece of the pie. And within that smaller piece of the pie, you have to see if something like electronic medical records is indeed a priority or not. That's that's to, to what uh, Dr. Sipilin said earlier, fellowship, for example. Fellowship yes. is where they get to practice with the senior physician, and that's mm -hmm. where they learn the trait, the specialty of whether it be reproductive medicine, pain, cardiovascular, anything. Yeah. And that's the important thing, is to gain that experience, to be able to actually then implement it, uh, integrate it within the community with patients, rather than the EMR systems, you know, electronic health records and all that. that eventually, that that's easy to do. Like you said, you can... Just get a web domain from here and pay the monthly fee, and you have access to it. It's, yeah. That's yeah. not an issue. But I love it, man. I, I love that every single doctor we've had, whether it's for medicine or for science, they're going back to the, to the, the homeland. <laughs> yeah, to the homeland and, you know, working with, you know, other doctors. And it's like they say, you know, iron sharpens iron, and that's that's what's going on. It's I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And in, in, in regards to fellowships, I mean, we are launching some fellowships now within the NIH, the National Institute of Health in Armenia, um, reproductive medicine being one of them. And, you know, technology, things like this give us the ability to, you don't have to physically be there, where 20 right. years ago, 
you actually had to physically be there, mm. you know. Telehealth. Uh, <laughs> well, there there are ways where through web-based, you know, uh, teleconferencing and telelecturing and, and so on, you can still have some sort of an impact. Um, well, you can even use telehealth where you can evaluate the patient from true. here in Armenia That's technically, right? right? That's right. There, 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 there are modalities like that. And, and actually, it's great to see that evolving. And, you know, another point uh, that, that I'd like to make is that oftentimes, you know, we've looked at Armenia as, oh, we need to help them, right? Oh, you know, you know, like give this. Fish. Yeah. yeah, give them fish, right? <laughs> and, and that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. And then and, and I t- totally, and maybe I wasn't around when those days were there. I'm sure there was, were days where, you know, oh, they needed the fish, mm-hmm. right? There was no body of water to fish from or not right. even the capacity to learn how to fish. Mm-hmm. But that we've, we've gone past that, you know, post-Soviet Armenia is not, what it was after the earthquake where there was no electricity there was no infrastructure the war right after the earthquakes that's right double whammy that's right now now it's 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 time to really allow armenia to be uh you know to be a, a nation that can stand on its feet and i think that sometimes you know looking at towards armenia saying we need to give it fish i think that we're actually doing a disservice if anything if you're not if you don't have the capacity to go and there and teach how to fish, then don't go at all. Because by giving fish, you're actually maybe doing more harm. It's a Enabling. Them, That's yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, it's you're you're, uh, you know, because if you so long as you're giving fish, then the government's not going to give that fish, yeah, saying, there "Oh, there, it's coming from the diaspora." And that's how the government looks bad too. Well, then, and that's that's why. I mean, if we ha- we all have the capability of teaching somebody or some institution on how to fish, then that's how we ought to look. You know. Build the capacity, build the capacity capacity of our small country, which is you know we have less people there than we have here in LA, right? Yeah. Uh, it's something that can be done. It's not you know we're, we're not talking about a huge nation. It's definitely something attainable. I've seen it you know within reproductive yeah. medicine. And you said the technology is there. It's just a matter of being able to you know acquire the technology. Which I mean, can you talk about that fundraiser because you know. Is that something where you're you're building money to basically help fundraise and help acquire that technology, or is it for something else? So the the money that's being raised for is actually to train a group of doctors and nurses. You know, we're setting up a boot camp. So that's one, Mm -hmm. um, where doctors will go and, like, get a crash course uh, fellowship, so to speak, in um, you know remote medicine to be able to go to the villages and deliver health care, right? The curriculum is being established here in the United States by people who have expertise in that, you know, so both in from physicians to nursing. So um, so the curriculum is being you know established in a you know in a very high quality manner. It's going to be delivered there, and then once those physicians and nurses you know, get their certification in this course, then they're able to be deployed into the regions to the to provide healthcare to those regions, right? Um, so, you know, they have to commit for an X amount of time to be trained. They have to commit to an X amount of time to go and serve in those specific areas. And once they do, they get an additional degree, right? So all along... It, 
you know, it's not it's not fundraising to buy a piece of equipment and then send it there, which, you know, a lot of historically a lot of organizations do and we buy this most state-of-the-art piece of equipment you know nobody knows how to use it you send it there nobody <laughs> knows how to use it right in fact not just that not the you know this service uh, i mean this uh you know piece of high advanced equipment requires service. constant service constant calibration and you know there's no rep there to uh, and it just sits there and and people forget about it and you know here we say you know, good job. We sent the the latest uh, equipment. <laughs> MRI <laughs> equipment, whatever it is. Yeah, you I mean, got the whole village staring at it like, what the, how do we plug this thing so in? <laughs> it, I mean, in essence, it's more of like training uh, training the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, whatever they are. Teaching how to fish. Yeah. Teaching how to fish at a high capacity. And that's sort of the the most impactful uh impactful and sustainable ways of intervening and you do you can share this information with us we'd love to actually spread the word because i mean uh, as far as anything uh helping armenia and you know helping raise money for it i mean the three of us for are for it definitely you know once the official flyers and dates are set you know i'll definitely share it with you guys please. and please you yeah. know uh, share it with everyone out there i mean this is something that you know um, there, there's a few things that that a country needs. Healthcare, education. I mean, those are some of the you know major, major, big pillars for our country to be a strong, you know, leading nation. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's great that we have a very, very high literacy rate. I think that's a something that's been left over from the Soviet days, and it's a positive thing. Healthcare, on the other end. I don't know. Left over from the Soviet <laughs> days. Left over from the Soviet days. Not not well, not so uh, not so positive. Armenia is becoming or is being named as a tech hub now. Top ten yes. tech hubs in the world. So imagine if let's say in about ten, fifteen, twenty years, like Israel is, it becomes a one of the top countries in the world for scientific research and medicine development right well i mean, I mean for for any country and i and i see this you know energy with you know with armenia um for any country for let's say all of us one day to say truly it's my you know country where i'm actually going to go live there mm -hmm. there needs to be very good health care because you know with all of us eventually are going to have some sort of a chronic medical issue where um you want there to be proper medicine. That's right. God forbid, you know, you're having a heart attack. You want to make sure that you call nine one one and you're going to get that timely. <laughs> you get nine one one. You know, that's, that's a, an can issue. Can you bring him by the next few hours? <laughs> no, you need to come pick him up. <laughs> yeah. Can you so drop him off on the corner of side no well, <laughs> That could be an issue with some places in America too. So. That's it's true, but yeah. however, I mean, uh, <laughs> and, and the beauty about a place like Armenia is that it's small enough where you can make a big impact. Yes, and and all it takes is a few to really make a lasting impact. Whereas that's why when you know politicians propose certain things for the U.S. when they're comparing it to Norwegian countries or. You can't compare it's US like, to any well, other region. Yeah, you've got the population of Pasadena, Glendale, Burbank combined. You can't compare that to right. 400 million people. Whereas Armenia, if anything works anywhere, you can pretty much implement it there. And right. it's almost guaranteed to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
anything else you guys want to touch base on before we call it a night? I mean, you have a bunch of, uh, I don't even want, I don't know if I should mention their names, patients, or, um, uh, oh, look at Voskin. Well, Vosgen's going. Vosgen's going. Uh, Vosgen's going. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vosgen. <laughs> but yet, you had a bunch of people actually saying, you know, vegan is the best. Um, thank you, vegan. You know, Vosgen was 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 uh, from Lebanon, my neighbor. You know, really, uh, really. It's, it's, so he he's, he knows me. You know, like you know, when I was a little kid. So when you were a Hakim, <laughs> you know, when that was the that was the uh, nickname, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he would remember that, huh? Uh, if he asks Vosgen, Vosgen will probably say he's younger than you. He'll be like, well, I was younger and he was older than me. This could be, could be, yeah. I don't know his age, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think he's a little older, maybe a year or two. <laughs> I think you're being too nice right now. <laughs> <You're being like, laughs> uh, going to sleep well tonight. Yeah. Uh, anything, guys? Uh, you guys want to touch base on before we call it a night? Um, well, when I mentioned travels, I don't know if you want to talk about some of your... Rem- you know, exotic destinations you've been to, anything you want to share with the audience or Sri Lanka, maybe. Because yeah, I, I see, Lanka. I see some of these places you go on, what well, donkey rides and va- va- you know, flying in dragons and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> scenes from Game we of Thrones. We get on the weekends. Yeah, we, we get on the weekends. It's, yeah, it's, that's. Uh, it's not. You don't take pictures at like Ravi's place or anything. It's always. <laughs> it's kind of similar to what's that guy, the uh, Andrew. Zimmerman, is it the uh, the guy that eats everything? Zimmerman, Zimmerman. Zimmerman? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're somewhere. you're everywhere, huh? Yeah. Yeah. No, travel is a. I, I try to get away. Um, you know, we there's there's some couple of uh, few of us around the world who we grew up with. We tried a rendezvous. Uh, Sri Lanka was one of them. That that was a uh, a nice trip. We've we've done some trips through the Himalayas. Yeah, um, I remember the Himalayas picture. <laughs> Himalaya is actually, you know, very, very interesting place. You know, I found out that there's this temple, Buddhist temple, that's up in the mountains. That's a fertility temple. So, Where you know, it has bases mm, like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> well, felt right at home, right there. Huh? So they said, and I'm like, you know, I, and I told my guide, I'm like, yeah, we gotta go. And then the guide's like, well, it's three days out of the way, and it's gonna take a whole day worth of hiking, and it's on the middle of a cliff. Oh, uh, wow. we're going. You know, I said, it's exactly. I said, yes, we're going. You know. So, yeah, it was a really, you know, uh, interesting experience because that temple exactly was people who can't have babies go over there, you know. And I said, yeah, I'd like to go and meet the monks and meet the head monk and share, compare notes and see. <laughs> <laughs> it was more scientifically advanced. <laughs> I was like, is there something that I can learn, you know? Like, what's... what's uh, yeah. You're open to it. <laughs> Well, I, it's, I'm, oh, you know what? That's you always learn, and and uh, you always have to have an open mind. It's you like know? a parachute, your mind. You know, I always say <laughs> that uh, you know fertility. The results are black and white, right? That's it. You know, it's, you, you succeed. Somebody has a baby, right? And when patients come to me, I'll say, look, there are, I'm sure, multiple ways where you can get to that goal. I can tell you one of them which we're very good at, but it's not the only way. You know, just because I'm proposing this way, it doesn't mean that this is the only way. There may be, you know, you may go to a naturopath, which I'm totally open for you to go to. They may propose something else that may also work, and that's fine too. It's just not what I do, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm not close closed to that, you know, approaches. But anyway, coming back to, to that... Um, 
you know, it, it, it was an interesting type of, uh, you know, the guy made a joke. He goes, yeah, the, the, the monks, you know, it was their month off. So the monks weren't there, but the temple keeper was there. And, and the guy goes, he, through the, my guide, he was in, interpreting to me. He goes, yes, we're very good here. Goes, but it's ironic that you know all the babies that come out, they look like the monk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's the solution. Oh, right? you know? oh, <laughs> kind of like what Sako so- said earlier. <laughs> yeah, Super Sako was basically saying he was like, if anybody's having fertility issues, send them over to me. <laughs> oh yeah, so he's saying that. Yeah. Uh, well, Amy has a question. Uh, Amy says, well, we kind of dabbled on this a little bit. Uh, why is infertility so high, especially amongst? Armenians and what advice would you give to young couples I mean we we kind of did touch base on this and I think well I mean if if Amy's talking about uh, infertility being high in Armenia it is higher in Armenia than it is here really? and for and for various reasons um, and you know that this uh, surveys have been done to figure out why why that is um, and we think, and in fact, we know that uh, certain sexual transmitted diseases can lead to infertility, and you know the pre- prevalence of some of those infections, at least at some point, were very high in Armenia. Uh-huh. And as a result, um, you know that would result in uh, more difficulty in getting pregnant. Luckily, those are those have been changing and and our, the numbers in Armenia are normalizing more towards the west yeah. um, i've also heard about some some of the uh, like you talked about the environmental effects where there used to be a lot of factories where the factories affected certain areas when that people grew up in or were raised in um, had higher infertility rates because they were closer to let's say plastic factory or what have you, and uh, is that is that also true? Could be. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I, at least I don't know about Armenia. That no. may be true, but we know that you know environmental uh, <coughs> you know toxins can impact yeah. both okay. men and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Call it a night. This was great, guys. Thank you for Doctor. joining us. Did Doctor. you guys feel your sperm count go up? Of course, the we last did, two bro. hours. Of course, we did. Absolutely. <laughs> We're still in the storing process. At this <laughs> You'll find out 90 days from But that's, uh, before we end the show, when would, you said how long of a time period was it where you were talking about like it's stored and it matures? How many months was it, you said? 70 to 90 that's days. That's crazy. See, I had yeah. no, that was. That's a shelf life. Yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs> but the question is like, I feel like a lot more people get pregnant during the cold season, this winter time. I wonder why. Is, yeah. that, is that true? I've, I've also heard that where. It's recommended, even if to doing treatments, to do it in a cooler weather, cooler climate versus warmer um, for any type of infertility treatment. It really doesn't matter because the, the, when the treatments are done, the environment is very tightly controlled. controlled. Yeah. Oh, okay. So now, if you know the facility doesn't have the technology, no AC or AC, <laughs> which I have seen, by the way, which I have seen. You know, a lot of these remote places that I go yeah. to, I actually also always I'm interested in, to seek out the healthcare system and learn something. Mm. And oftentimes I go to the fertility clinics uh, to see how they run, and, and have made some great friends in those remote places, which some of them I brought yeah. to Armenia even. Um, but yeah, there are places where you know they're like, oh, you know, in the really hot months. 
the you know the electricity isn't adequate, so we closed the clinic for a few wow, months. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, which is better than not closing of the course. clinic? And, of course. And, yeah. uh, Spending you know, all that money and having yeah. it failed. Yeah. Right. Sanitary think, as well. I mean, it's like you got <laughs> sweating people all over the place. It's you know, and obviously you have bacteria and stuff yeah. grows. Don't in forget, my a lot of processes go on in this office. So many <laughs> processes. Yeah. Well, but I have a recommendation for you guys regarding the shelf life, if I may share it with you. Go ahead, Armand. Go, go ahead. Go ahead before share. we end the, end the show. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Armand. I mean, maybe, the, I don't know if you would agree with this, but you can probably use a Sharpie. Just put a date on your testicles every night so you remember <laughs> when the production started. <laughs> See, we were waiting for it. Yeah, man, don't do that. I don't no. agree. Yeah, don't, yeah, the, don't the, sharp, the, sh- the ink from the Sharpie. <laughs> yeah. might, might been doing it for two months. Yeah. <laughs> you have a date on there. Yeah. Like, honey, Just tell make me. sure you throw those Sharpies <laughs> away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then, highlight the important ones when, in when, lime green. <laughs> and use a glove and throw it away. <laughs> Doctor, thank you so much for taking time out of your Monday to be with us, man. It was a pleasure. Definitely a pleasure. And I I think our audience learned, I learned quite a bit. I thought I knew a few things about (laughs) the human anatomy. I'm just glad I learned how kids are made, bro. Yeah. So it's not the uh, pelican that flies in the, the, the now birds it's, it's the a, Now it's the pelican. <laughs> what happened to you? What happened to your peacock? <laughs> the pelican. <laughs> flamingo. Oh, you're flamingo. flamingo. <laughs> God, man. Oh, man. Uh, anyways, thanks, guys, so much for tuning in. Um, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, iTunes as well. We're actually almost up to date on that as well. Probably by next Friday, we'll be at uh, episode 66, which is today's episode. Yeah. Uh, doctor, again, thank you so much thank for taking you. time out of your Monday you, to join us. Uh, everybody else, have a great week. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Monday. Peace. Peace.